Welcome to Business Talk, Sister Grok. And today's episode topic is how to evaluate a commercial building for your business. And this is the last episode in my building series. It's not sequential, but I will tell you that I've done quite a few other episodes around this topic and just in terms of like the exact location, all that kind of stuff. And and some of this is just spillover into what I've learned in the process. And I think this is a good also place to start because there's some things at the very beginning that I wish I would have had uh, a little bit more grounding in as well as just things that I've learned. So I really hope this is beneficial to you, but here we go. So the first tip I had for you in evaluating a commercial building is take your time and be patient. And I cannot stress this enough. Be so patient before ever jumping into a commercial property investment, even if it's painful for everyone else to answer your questions, to meet with you at the building, to inspect everything, to let you review stuff, to gather your information for you. You need to take really slow responsibility for looking at this because it's your money and you should make sure that you have done all of your due diligence beforehand. And in the last episode that I talked about a little bit, like the business versus like the the property, if you're buying both together um, with Richard Parker, I, I thought it was so valuable what he was talking about. Most of the people in the commercial property buying process have something to gain from you finalizing a transaction. And they're going to be happy to move along as fast as they can but it may not be in your best interest. So don't ever feel pressured to do something, seriously. I have had to walk away from deals before because of the cost, because of the expectation on me, or just the circumstances were not right. And seriously, if you're looking at a property and you're like, okay, this is what I would have to put out to be able to acquire this property and I've looked at a property before one time that I thought was wonderful but it also came with a house and I would have to live there <laughs> and in the end it wasn't it wasn't the best fit for me and my family because I didn't want to live on site next to the place that I was going to have my business and maybe that's okay for you but I'm just saying take a moment for every piece of it that you have to evaluate because that expectation on you is to try to push you through and get to a close. And you don't have to, you don't have to do that. Um, I'm just gonna give you one more example of this. One time I was looking at a building that actually was really nicely redone and it was a really good deal. It was renovated by like a city, so they were making it really cheap because they wanted somebody to get into it and all of that, and I liked it. Um, But the location, was right next to a bar that had a reputation for being not so great at night and it had huge storefront windows and not any back room so basically if I was there everyone would see it all the time and I knew I wouldn't want to be there alone at night by myself and so when I started like kind of looking at the property I was already like with this hesitation and I ended up finding out in the process as I was inquiring further that another party was interested in the building as well and they said well you guys need to come together and pitch your ideas of what you are going to put in the building and then we'll decide between you two and at that point I'm like okay so potentially we could get into a bidding war over this 
And I just don't think like I want to put that kind of baggage on top of somebody else who already has a vision for this building. <laughs> like I don't, it's not meeting my entire needs. It doesn't have all the storage I want or the second story for additional rental income. It's not my ideal fit. It was something I could maybe start with and then grow into something else. But if someone else already has a fantastic idea for this building, I don't want to compete and jack up the price for them. I'd rather see their business succeed in this location because it's less than ideal for me. And just because something is a fantastic deal doesn't mean that it's the right deal for you, okay? And I just want to reiterate that because a lot of times people have regret when they let something go like, oh, I could have had that. Like, I could have done that. And like, if it's not ultimately where you want to be, it's okay to let it go. Even if it is like, wow, you you gave up a great opportunity. That's okay. Okay, so then the next tip I would give you is that you should inspect the property thoroughly with multiple different kinds of people. So your realtor is probably going to hate me for saying this if you're working with a realtor. If you're working with with the owner, they may be a little annoyed as well, quite honestly. But you got to make sure that it's the right thing for you. So if you are looking at um, a property in an area where there's like a high concentration of moisture, I would really be looking for like mold or pest infestations, um, any kind of signs of structural damage. If you can get up into the attic, all that kind of stuff. If you are not comfortable doing that and you're like, look, I just have a business. I don't know anything about properties. Then you should take someone with you that knows about buildings. And I've done this multiple times. I've had friends work for construction companies or whatever. And I'm like, hey, can you just come with me when I go look at this building? Because I want your perspective and want your experience. And you know what I found the more that I do this, the more perspectives and insight on details that I would have missed if I went by myself. So each person that I've brought to a location has something different in their perspective about what they see about the space. And whether that's, oh, you need to look at these beams because they're a little bit charred. It looks like there was a fire here one time, which the building I have totally had multiple fires, by the way. And um, that's been exciting. But you know what? I was able to get referred to quite a few different structural engineers and people that are working different places that were able to come in and look at it. And if you need a structural engineer, the best and most effective resource that I have found to check that out is actually looking for a board of licensors for for them. Your state probably has one. In Minnesota, we have Minnesota Board of Architecture, Engineering, Land Surveying, Landscape Architecture, Geoscience, and Interior Design. That is such a mouthful. (laughs) But what you can do there is that you can search by name or a certificate number, or like you can just press the alphabetical thing and it'll give you like everyone with the last name that starts with A or B or whatever. And then it'll show you their license number and when it expires. Because some people will say, oh yeah, I'll come look at your property, but maybe they're retired and their license is expired. And so they might be a really good deal, but they're not currently licensed to give you advice um, and help you mitigate some liability if there's ever an issue. So really good place to check that out. Also, I have found that smaller structural engineering firms or individuals that are doing their own business are going to be a lot cheaper than working with a large firm. 
And I mean, they're just used to larger clients and larger building costs overall. So if you're trying to save money, I would definitely try to find somebody smaller. And additionally, if you find someone in a rural area, you're gonna be able to probably get a lot better deal than if you're looking in a metropolitan area because they're gonna have clients that also have like skyscrapers and all this other kind of stuff that um, may be great because that's what's needed in that area. But like, if you don't have a building that big, you don't need to worry about that. So try to find somebody that is a little bit more familiar with the type of building that you're looking at because they're gonna be able to give you a better consultation on that type of project faster and more efficiently than somebody else that has to do a bunch of legwork to get up to speed on the type of building you have. So that's just a little bit of a tip there. So the other thing I would definitely look at, especially because if a building has been out of commission for a while, say vacant or something, um, it's not going to have the same standards to get it back into up and running status as a building would that is constantly being used because there's a lot of stuff in terms of like apartments that are on the second floor or the main floor and the way things are set up that would be um, grandfathered in the way they are now because it's been just in production the whole time. But then if it's out of commission, nobody's been in it, then you have to do a lot of things to get it to a place where it's compliant with like the standard codes and all that kind of stuff. So think about that. Like if it's currently being used, does it have that grandfathered ability or are there other things that the city or the state is saying, hey, you have to fix this stuff? And especially when it comes to like bathrooms, for example, where I live, there's actually quite a few businesses that don't even have a bathroom available to the public because they renovated and the cost of their renovation, they didn't include budgeting in making a ADA compliant bathroom. And in order to have a public bathroom, after you renovate, you have to have an ADA compliant one. And so they just said, well, that's a really high cost. So we're just not even gonna have a public bathroom and people are gonna have to go somewhere else, which is kind of an issue if you're like a restaurant or something. So <laughs> the good news is that there are some ADA tax credits through the federal government. Um, specifically, those tax credits can apply to small businesses if you're making less than a million dollars, have 30 or fewer employees, and I think the maximum credit is around $5,000 and it's like 50% of whatever you put in for expenditures, so you have to save your receipts. And I didn't know this until recently, I talked about this a little bit, but actually the state of Minnesota has a reimbursement for trying to make your business more accessible for employees with disabilities. And you should check that out because that's like up to $30,000 reimbursable. So that is exciting. Okay, so the next thing I would definitely recommend is going to your building with a budget in mind of what you're gonna need to do. As in, if you are gonna have to change up like the front entry or get new signage or all these different things, make a list and then start writing down how much the average spend on what that's gonna be to install. And when you have that list ready to go, what I would really recommend doing is also going on a walkthrough with a potential contractor that you would want to renovate the property if you were planning on making improvements right after purchasing. Because a lot of times you'll be saying, oh, this is what I really wanna do, I wanna move this here, blah, 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 blah. And like a contractor will be able to tell you, well, you can't do that this way because you need to have this vent here 
in order to be decode. So you're going to have to do this and this and this to make this compliant. Otherwise, you can't do that. And for commercial buildings, it's far, far different than residential properties. So it's really good to have that perspective. And the more different contractors or people in construction that know commercial buildings that you can bring out to this building before you buy it to say, tell me your perspective, that is going to be so helpful for you. And honestly, I would take out your potential insurance agent to the building as well because I've heard of people getting into a building and then the insurance company says, hey, we you just bought this building, we got you insurance, but now we're going to drop your policy because you need to get a new roof or we're not going to insure you anymore. And if you didn't know that beforehand, because it took a little bit of time for them to go out and inspect the property and tell you if it's insurable or not, that's a huge additional cost just to have insurance on your building. So even if you just send them the listing of the property and say, hey, could you take a look at this? Is this something you guys would insure? What would that look like? How much would it cost? What would you need from me? That's all super, super beneficial. And another thing that people don't think about when it comes to these kind of things like insuring a building is if it's an older building and it has, say, like a chimney and the heating system is wood or coal (laughs) i sure hope it's not coal but whatever it is like that might be something that's going to totally drive up your insurance costs because they're like whoa that's a huge fire risk we're not going to deal with that or they'll just say no you have to have a different heating source or we won't cover this building so those are really really important things to be thinking through before getting into the property because you could get yourself in a bind later after you make the purchase if you're not thinking through all of that and making sure you have a plan even if it's like you know what I don't care about that because I still want the building at least then you'll be aware of the next thing you have to fix before you can start moving forward so I I think that's huge couple other things I wanted to talk about that I haven't talked about yet if you are looking at an older building you're gonna want to check to see if it's one in a historical district of a town and two if it's on the national historic registry so there's two different things here and and i want to make sure you know the difference something that is on the historical district registry whatever not like registered individually as a building but just like it's a historic block that's been there for like 100 years or something and if that is registered because the city has gone through the process of doing their entire historical district Um, that can be an advantage in some ways especially if you already have a cash flowing business and you know oh I'm going to put this in here and I can use the historical tax credit to renovate this building. Um, I'm going to talk about the historical tax credit a little bit more in just a second but first difference here is if the building is registered on the national historic registry there's a lot more regulations on that. So to keep it on the registry, you have to make sure that you don't touch certain things, like you can't really update the electrical very easily and all this different stuff. And navigating that, it gets really expensive and there's a lot more rules. So just really be conscious of that because it applies to the interior of the building, whether you're gonna do paint or trim or whatever, it's it's light fixtures, it's a lot. So I would personally not recommend unless you're doing some sort of like specifically museum style historic Airbnb or something and you want to make it as authentic as possible. Um, 
I would steer away from stuff on the national registry just because it's not cost effective unless you have a very specific purpose for how you are going to cash flow it to be so. So I'm just throwing that out there. Okay, then the next thing, if you're in a historical district, a lot of times how cities and government look at that is they want to keep the exterior of the building to look historic. They want as much as they can. You don't have any rules on that. Like you don't have to keep it to looking the way it did at the time. But if you want to take advantage of the historical tax credit, then you have to take that more seriously and you have to look at it and get a historical architect to work with you. And that can be a little bit expensive, but there are two different types of tax credits with that. Okay, so usually there's a federal one and the amount of it changes depending on the year and the legislation that comes out in their budgeting or whatever. But then there's also the uh, local state historic tax credit and you can stack these together so that's super nice but really just depends on the year and how much funding is put aside for that so when you're looking at the historical tax credits here's a couple things that i think is important to know one it would be through the department of preservation that you would talk to them historic preservation and they would be able to tell you what that's going to look like because a lot of times like when i called them i was trying to talk to them about my project and they said, hey, yeah, if you want to do something with your windows, you can't get new windows that just look like your old windows. You have to restore the windows you have. And then you have to send it to a specific person that works with just historic properties and they'll reglaze the windows for you and paint them and everything. And when I really got down to it, I talked to a few different people as well and asked their experiences on it. And they said, you know, anytime you want to do the historical tax credit and you follow the preservation rules, it's going to cost you three times as much to preserve the historic pieces than to just get something new. And that is super unfortunate, by the way, super unfortunate. <laughs> but I have learned that each historic preservation office interprets those rules of what is preservation differently. So your state may say, you know what, we don't give a rip what you do with the inside of the building. You can gut it, you can make it up to code, but we just want the exterior to look really nice and you have to get the exact paint colors if you can to what was historic for the beginning of when this building was built. So, and, and then you have a little plaque that has a picture of what it used to look like on the inside before you redid it. And that's how they preserve their history. And so every state is different. Every local area is different. And it really is worth it just to scope it out and understand and, and see what they have available. So like I said, if you have a cash flowing business, that's the best thing for the historical tax credit if you're really going to invest in that. And why I say that is because the historical tax credit on a federal level means that whatever you spend on your building for renovation costs and historic preservation, you're going to submit that, save all your receipts. It's a lot of administration and you're going to need to find an accountant who knows how to do that. But um, the big thing is that's a credit that only applies if you are making money. So it's basically like you get money back from your taxes that you don't have to pay in because you spent money on this project. But it only is good for five years. So what that means is if you are really not making a break even on your building because you put a whole bunch of money into it until year six, 
you're not going to see any of that historical tax credit be realized and you've lost it. So some people don't realize that. And when I called the preservation office, that was something they really wanted to talk me through because they said, we've seen people go through all this work to do this. And in the end, it's just not worth it for them. So we really want you to take time to evaluate, is it worth it? And that cost too, at the beginning of getting a historical architect that works with you and all of that kind of stuff, there are a lot of like grant funding available or like reimbursement for those kind of costs specific to keeping that. But um, that's a whole nother timeline process. So you have to think about, like I just did an, an episode on grants for businesses. You can check that episode out, by the way. But um, the funding cycle of just getting the architectural work done is actually like a six to eight month process just to get through that piece and reimburse before you can start even like the preservation section. So just kind of really factor in all those timelines. Okay. I have digressed on that a lot. And this is the last thing that I think is super interesting about historical tax credits. The majority of people that actually use them, and there's not a lot of information on this out there on the internet. I've realized that the majority of people that actually use them is because they are large, large, large businesses looking for ways to mitigate taxes. That's why they do it. And it's really not entirely the best program or feasible for a lot of small business owners, which is really unfortunate because that's like preserving a lot of our history. Um, Anyway, so I didn't realize that. And it's actually used most commonly as a bargaining chip in acquisitions when a larger company is looking to acquire things to get less taxes that year and how can I buy something that's going to help me not pay in as much taxes so I thought that was super interesting didn't know that was a type of currency or bargaining chip out there but fun fact for you okay so the next thing that I would really think about when you're looking at your property is evaluate whether or not you can grow in it. So in the future, are you going to start getting bigger and bigger orders? Are you going to have a loading dock? Um, That's a huge thing. I didn't realize that if you have a commercial versus residential space and you order from certain companies, their freight fees go far, far increased if you have to order it to a residentially zoned property or if you don't have a loading dock. And you can knock like $75 to $200 off if you just have a place for them to drop the freight. I have had people actually build, I've seen them build ramps out of dirt in their backyard just so the freight truck drops it there and doesn't have to um, pay that extra $200 fee. So that's something to think about. Also, do you have enough parking? A lot of times people don't realize when they get a ton of customers in at the same time that um, their parking is not enough. And especially when it comes to like busy time or your throughput model, like if you're going to have any sort of like online pickup or if people are going to have a drive up, what does that look like to have that space where people aren't getting jammed or stuck or someone's parking behind them and they can't get out? Like that's huge. And honestly, especially for certain things that are really popular, I don't go to certain restaurants at certain times a day because I just know there's nowhere for me to park and I don't feel comfortable getting out of there afterwards because the traffic is just so bad and so really think about how customers are accessing you and if you have the appropriate flow for people to feel comfortable entering and exiting without any kind of apprehension like that parking piece is huge in a lot of areas so really really think about that. 
Okay, the last couple things I'm gonna tell you is that I think it's really important if you're evaluating a property that has multiple storefronts and you're looking at cash flowing the rental space or whatever, I think it's really good to have an idea or a checklist of other things you're looking at to make sure that the investment is going to see a good timely return for what you're putting into it. One checklist to use to evaluate that I would highly recommend is Rich Dad Poor Dad's Guide to Investing what the rich invest in that the poor and middle class do not. And that's by Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Letcher. And it's chapter 38 has some really good stuff in it about that, specifically a checklist of what you should be thinking through in terms of do the lease ease have contracts? Are they up for renewal? How long have they been tenants? All that kind of stuff. And I just did that based on memory. I don't know if that's exactly the entire list, but I think it's on page 318 to 319. So Get it at the library if you don't want to buy it, but you should check it out because that's also a very good thing to think through. And for the gawk portion of this episode, I am going to tell you a story <laughs> about my building. So uh, when I first bought my building, I had to clean up the backyard and it sort of looked like someone used to be living in the stairwell of my basement. <laughs> And it was just full of like random things like food containers and trash bags. It was just like somebody seriously was like staying there. And I had no idea why someone would just not put the trash in the bins that are like right down the street. And it was so gross. So I had to use these thick leather gloves and I still keep finding so much glass in my backyard and if you are following along on Instagram with some of my building journey and all of that oh my goodness you will see <laughs> that as I was digging up glass in the backyard I realized the culprit of like a lot of the glass was coming from the fact that somebody took out some windows a long time ago and then buried the windows in the yard, like under loads of dirt, which is so dangerous. And also like, just take it to the dump. It does not cost that much, but whatever. Anyways, <laughs> that was my exciting find at my building so far during demo. Um, I have to probably backhoe the backyard to get the rest of it out because there's just so much in there. But there you go. This is my reminder to you to always check out the actual property itself and not just the building because somebody may have been burying trash in your yard for years and it is not fun to find later. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to this episode and coming along with me on the building series. I'm sure I will have loads more content I have learned on buildings in quite a few weeks here because I'm still working through my building. But if you enjoyed this series, give it a review wherever you are listening and I will see you next time.